0: We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised.
1: Only here in Berlin, the heads of two blocks facing each other. The, the NATO and the Warsaw Pact were living in one city. They were living door to door, and next to each other. And uh, because of this, a couple of things were possible in Berlin that could only be done in Berlin.
0: Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. <laughs> Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr.
2: On today's podcast, I'm joined by Bernard von Koska, who is the curator of the Allied Museum in Berlin, and the co-author of the excellent book, Capital of Spies. On this episode, we discuss Capital of Spies, that takes a look at the history of Cold War Berlin. Just before we begin, we now have a YouTube channel, I've been threatening it for a while and now we have it. So please follow the link below in the show notes and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And there are video versions of the podcast. So if you like to see a squiggly line with your interviews, you can now see a squiggly line on YouTube. If you wish to support the podcast, there are a few options for you. You can become a Patreon subscriber and directly support the show for three pounds a month. We also have a merchandise store at Redbubble. We have cups, coasters, water bottles and tote bags all available on the Redbubble store. Also, if you enjoy this episode, please share it on social media among friends, family, colleagues, cohorts. And lastly, please leave a review on your podcast. Apple reviews help the show get discovered by other people. Apple podcasts in particular love reviews and they really help this show get featured on the app. So please do leave a review. All the links are available in the show notes below. Thank you so much for your
0: support. And without further ado, let's get going. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast.
2: Bernard, welcome to the podcast. Please can you just tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Well,
1: Chris, thank you for inviting me. I was uh, obviously born in Germany in 1962, and then I studied uh, history and politi- political science and uh, public law in Trier in Germany and also in Stafford in Great Britain. And uh, since 1994, I'm a member of the academic staff at the Allied Museum in Berlin. And uh, two years, uh, I was also the acting director of that museum. And uh, doing the job at the museum, I'm a curator and uh, was responsible for a couple of uh, uh, exhibitions, like The Link with Home, that is dealing with Western Allied radio broadcasting stations, AFN and BFBS and BFN. Um, mission accomplished to Western Allied uh, military liaison missions in Potsdam and also an exhibition on the spy tunnel. And who was a Nazi and so and 100 objects uh, Berlin during Cold War. So I did a lot of exhibitions during my last uh, 25 years at the museum. And I also published uh, uh, numerous uh, articles on several subjects, usually Berlin blockade, Berlin airlift. But I'm also the co-author of of the book uh, Capital of Spies. And, um, uh, yes, and that's what we are basically talking about.
2: Yeah, well, can you give us a very, very sort of brief bookshelf summary of what Capital of Spies is about?
1: Well, it's dealing with the intelligence activities of uh, the Western powers, that was my part, as well as uh, the East Germans, that was the part of uh, the German Berlin Journalist I was writing that book with his my co-author his name is Sven Felix Kellerhoff, And he's writing for the national newspaper die Welt for many many years and published more than 20 books So he's an expert on um, National Socialism and on the GDR and so uh, we decided uh, to write the book together I'm doing the one half on the Allies and he's doing the other half on East Germany And uh, it's a good overview. Uh, We are dealing with a couple of uh, intelligence operations from 1945 to 1990. And this uh, 300 pages will give you a good overview of what happened in Berlin during the Cold War. And uh, yes, I think some of those things we uh, will talk about today.
2: Yes, excellent. Well, I think spy books make the best books to read about a city you're going to. And I'm actually planning a trip myself to Berlin later this year. Um, To my uh, shame, I've not... really spent much time in Berlin um, but I'm going to correct that this year I have spent a lot of time in Vienna which we'll talk about (laughs) shortly but um, what is it that drew you to this topic because obviously you're incredibly knowledgeable you've got a lot of sort of background research you know background sort of um, experience being the head of the Allied Museum and things so what is it that sort of drew you to this topic and how do you go about sort of researching the, the content for your book
1: basically it was a publisher who a person approached me and asked me if I do not want to write a book about espionage uh, in berlin and i said well hmm, yes and no uh, yes i can do one half of the book and no is because i don't know the other side good enough so that's the reason why we have two authors and why we split that book and the research is um, as i said i have uh, more than 25 years experience in a similar uh, topics for the exhibitions at the Allied Museum. And I had uh, contact uh, to a couple of uh, spies uh, for those exhibitions. And um, there, um, things they said and the ideas they give me. And obviously, um, you have a network uh, as a curator in museums. And uh, know where, whom you can approach uh, to get a couple of documents. And ironically enough, a lot of uh, information was in the former uh, Stasi documents. So, the BSTU, that is the organization uh, who kept uh, the Stasi files after the uh, GDR collapsed, Uh, you would find a lot of information in
2: there. Yeah. Excellent. Well, we briefly touched upon Vienna. So Vienna is obviously often talked about as a major spy city, but your book is arguing that Berlin's more significant. So can you talk to us about the sort of similarities and differences between Berlin and Vienna? And we're sort of looking at 1945 to 55, which is sort of the early days of the Cold War.
1: Yes, Berlin was not unique uh, because also in Vienna, uh, the four major occupation forces, the Soviet Union, the Americans, the British and the French, share the town and they all four uh, occupied Vienna as well as Berlin. The only difference in Vienna is there was a neutral zone, uh, which did not exist in Berlin. Uh, But the other major difference between vienna and berlin is that vienna was not in the middle of the soviet zone or later the gdr so you have a couple of uh, similarities like all four powers uh, occupied it and shared it uh, divide the city into their individual uh, zones but the big difference is that berlin was encapsulated in the soviet uh, zone and uh, which became the gdr later on uh, but this is a big difference and vienna only uh, existed as an occupying uh, c- occupied city from 1945 to 1955 and after 55 it was only and exclusively berlin um, that has this uh, unique status and the status was unique because only here in Berlin, the the heads of uh, the two blocks facing each other, the, the NATO and the Warsaw Pact, were living in one city. They were living door to door, next to each other. And uh, because of this, a couple of things were possible in Berlin that could only be done in Berlin. And I think we will have a few examples uh, for that later.
2: Yeah, yeah, well, definitely. It, it, I suppose that close proximity gives it a lot of um, opportunity for sort of, uh, what's the word I want? So, well, not just covert relationships, but a sort of, um, sort of background, behind-the-scenes diplomacy just based on sort of interpersonal relations.
1: But Berlin was indeed also the, the blueprint uh, for a lot of things uh, that also uh, happened in Berlin. Uh, for example we have uh, we have knowledge that in uh, Austria uh, the CIA paid um, their informants uh, between one hundred thirty and one hundred or two hundred dollars uh, full time uh, informants, mm-hmm. and we know that uh, this kind of money was also paid in Berlin, and also later on uh, we will learn that The Allies were trying to listen to the Soviet telephone conversation. And in the cellars in Vienna, they were digging, uh, they're they're breaking walls and digging little tunnels. And uh, a tunnel of seven meters in Vienna, uh, that was called Operation Mm. Silver, was also the Mm. blueprint for a much bigger tunnel later in Berlin.
2: Yeah yeah well can you talk to us a bit about those sort of early western intelligence efforts in berlin um and sort of you know sort of prior to the wall being constructed what information were western intelligence services sort of looking for and how did they go about obtaining it
1: when i got into the subject uh i was more or less uh, shocked uh when i noticed or when when i when i read um that the people active at the time uh were more or less blind uh, about the other side keeping in mind that in 1900 let's say 41 uh, the americans had no interest in the soviet union at all this is was on the other on another planet so they had no information about the soviet union when they entered the war it was not the soviet union they were aiming at it was obviously the third reich and nazi germany they were aiming at and the soviet union was the ally so again after entering the second world war they had no aim uh, to get any um, basic uh, intelligence on for on on an ally so then all of a sudden uh, the end of the second world war came and uh, all of a sudden in 46 um, of at least at least 47 it was obvious that uh, the former allies uh, do not work together that well and then obviously it was uh it was the big question so what do we know about the other side and uh, i can tell you that the russians (laughs) knew much more about the americans uh, than the americans knew about russia and uh, For that reason, the Americans started to employ former people from the German Wehrmacht, because the German Wehrmacht had indeed uh, knowledge about uh, military things that were going on in Russia, because the Germans need to know that when they started war against Russia, they need to know who the enemy was. And uh, when the Americans learned they don't know anything about it, they were starting to hire former uh, high-ranking officers of the Wehrmacht who were involved uh, in the intelligence against Russia, and it was, as I said, it was more or less shocking to learn uh, that at the time uh, they don't even have, until nineteen forty-seven, they don't even have a, a single Secret Service officer in Berlin uh, who can speak the Russian language.
2: Yeah, that was quite shocking when I read that. I was like, wow.
1: <laughs> and and also that uh, any kind of uh, piece they obtained from behind the Iron Curtain, they could not even cross-check it with other mm. sources because there mm. were no other sources. And also uh, very shocking that uh, even minimum um, knowledge, like uh, what did they say when they came up with a telephone book or with the latest map of the other side this this was a big thing so uh actually you can say the americans did know very little about the soviet union when they were in berlin and when they noticed that no longer the germans but probably the soviet union will be the next enemy
2: Mm and the Russian intelligence picture was quite complex it was so obscure that the CIA found it very difficult to kind of get a clear picture and verify the information like you were saying so can you give us a kind of quick guide to sort of that Russian intelligence uh, picture during 1945 to 1955 because there were quite a few agencies and it was slowly amalgamated into one didn't they
1: well Uh, Ironically enough, uh, the structure of the Russian intelligence uh, was so confusing that even some Soviet reports were mixing up uh, the areas of responsibility. And also as a result of that, uh, the American side uh, remained completely in the dark when it came to understand who is responsible for what. And so uh, you have, uh, for example, the NKGB, the People's Commissary for State Security, the MGB, the Ministry for State Security, then the KGB, and parallel to those organizations for a couple of years, uh, you have the KE, which is the Committee of Information. and, um, And all of that was very confusing. That was one point. And the other point is that until even many many years later uh, they could not put a face to a name even if they had the name of a russian uh representative of one of those organizations they couldn't put a face to it
2: wow that's crazy
1: so that happened to to that that's a that's a funny story when uh, markus wolf which is the spymaster of east germany mm. Uh, in the seventies, and he's from the the late fifties. He is a high ranking officer in in East German intelligence, and for for nearly twenty years, they know the name. They didn't know his face. They don't had a clue in the seventies how this guy looks like.
2: Mm. That's amazing. Yeah, it wouldn't be like that now. I'm assuming, but that's...
1: <laughs> <laughs> depending on how many selfies he did. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh dear! And the, and, and the one other interesting thing as well, like the um the services sort of started with only like six intelligence officers and it grew to something like 90 in a very short period it, it, that, that was quite interesting
1: yeah the, the the soviet kgb uh had his uh uh position in the district of karlshorst in berlin and mm. as i said as you mm. said they started with only six uh intelligence officers and then in a couple of uh years uh, they they rose it to 90 and um, when the kgb was founded in 1954 it uh, took over full control of of this international espionage and uh, but they still had an internal problem and the internal problem was that the soviet intelligence um uh and we learned that during the berlin blockade uh they sent reports back to Moscow who not necessarily fit with the reality. So, rather, so two aspects. Rather, they anticipated that those in the Soviet capital wanted to hear. Uh, or, on the other hand, they just don't want to risk uh, that they were the ones who present bad news, especially uh, when it comes to jo- Joseph Stalin who was not known for his kindness. Uh, So that's a problem the KGB had at the time.
2: Yeah, it's very dangerous when your spies are effectively just sending back information the way you want to hear it. It gives you a false perspective. And and unfortunately, I mean, that practice... um, did carry on in the 70s and 80s to some extent as well. I remember reading um, Next Stop Execution by Oleg Gordievsky, and he was saying all the officers are kind of trained to write reports in a very particular way to sort of favor certain views back home. So that practice continued on. I think
1: that's a problem (laughs) most uh, intelligence services have, Mm -hmm. that they have informants uh who are either writing what they expect the other side or their superiors wanted to hear or they just make up stories because they cannot deliver you know, they are getting paid and they cannot deliver. So what are you going to do? Yeah. So just inventing stuff.
2: Yeah, yeah. There's a great, you know, the, the famous novel by Graham Greene, our man in Havana. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's very much like that. <laughs>
1: yeah, I, I met Oleg Godievsky in Berlin when we had a, when we had a, a meeting with, uh, we, we had a, in Berlin at the mm. former listening station Teufelsberg. It was the CIA historical department and uh, the Allied Museum who did a huge uh, intelligence conference. And guys like uh, Oleg Gordievsky were there. Peter Zischel uh, was there, and all the big old names mm. of uh, of East and West uh, espionage were uh, at the Teufelsberg That was a that was a great thing. yeah.
2: Excellent! Oh my goodness! God, yeah, what a what a day! I, I met Oleg Gordievsky myself many many years ago. I, he used to be um, when I was a teenager. I used to work in a supermarket, and he used to be one of my regular customers. So I used to sell him salmon, which seems very it? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I also met Kalugin, and Kalugin had oh, wow. a very yeah. interesting story uh, on the Teufelsberg. Mm. Uh, on those early, on those early days, uh, I, I just have to uh, tell that story. Mm, yeah. So Kalugin said, when a CIA guy, a young man from the CIA office in Berlin, married, they sent a photographer yeah. to the church, and uh, the story is that he took. A lot of photos from the guys and put them together and said and and who and who are you and who are you, so I can give mm. you the images and stuff like this and when they they went into the church mm. and a lot of people approached um, the the CIA guy and said, Well, by the way, when the photos from your photographer outside are ready, send me uh, don't forget to send me my copies, and the guy said, I didn't hire a photographer." <laughs> And that's the way how you put a face to your name to a name. Yeah, yeah. You you send a photographer to a church uh, because who would a guy working in the CA office would invite uh, to his um, uh, mm. wedding in Berlin?
2: Mm. Obviously, people who work with him. Mm. So that
1: was a funny story.
2: Yeah. That's brilliant. Oh, I love that. <laughs> did um, did they keep the photos and give them to him later on? <laughs> <laughs> No, well, the photographer was obviously
1: from the other, from the KGB, yeah. yeah.
0: yeah.
1: And, and uh, everybody was posing for him, mm. and and he said, ah, "Can you put? Uh, can you put? Can you two oh, get together? God. You two. And what's your name? And can you please get here?" And uh, and uh, then when they approached uh, uh, the CIA guy and asked him uh, about the copies, and he said, "I, I didn't hire <laughs> And so obviously, the photographer was gone. Was mm. gone when they yeah. got outside. Yeah. Oh my
2: goodness. Oh my goodness. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. <laughs> well, um, one of the, the first sort of big uh, crises that the West intelligence had to had to face um after World War II was the 1948 sort of blockade of Berlin, uh, which led to obviously the famous sort of Berlin airlift. Can you talk to us about that period of time and how it affected the various intelligence services?
1: Yeah, 48 was a, a rough time in Germany. And um, first of all, uh, military governor Lucius Declay Clay sent a telegram to Washington. That was the 5th of March, 1948, uh, which is known today as a war telegram. But uh, obviously it wasn't. But for the first time, Lucius Declay Clay, as a military governor in Germany, had somehow a feeling that... Um, a war might break out Mm. and uh, for that reason uh, the CIA chief uh, Roscoe Hirnkötter only a week later uh, approached his service and he had uh, three simple questions Mm. and the question Mm. one was will the Soviet deliberately provoke a war in the next 30 days? um second question in the next 60 days and third question in 1948 and the first two questions the answer was no very immediately and they needed a while to uh, have an answer for the third question uh, if maybe a provoked war would break out in 48 uh, which in april they say it will not happen but uh a couple of months later, uh, the Soviet Union stepped out of the Four Power um, uh, Control Council, which uh, is dealing with Germany as a whole. And a couple of weeks later, they stepped out of the Allied Commandatura, which is dealing um, uh, in with all the things for Berlin. So on the administration level, uh, there was no Soviet partner anymore. And because of the currency reform that was done in the western parts of Germany, and that was essential mm. Uh, mm. for the economy, and after the Americans and the British uh, combined their zones to the B zone, and um, a couple of months later, the French joined in, they knew they, knew they needed a new currency, uh, which uh, is worth the money and uh, they uh, had a new currency in the western powers and it was not planned but all of a sudden they say the western forces said they would introduce this new currency also in west berlin and that is uh, the reason why the soviets uh, wanted first of all (laughs) i think the simple reason is they wanted to keep the new currency out otherwise they would have had two currencies in berlin which they had for a short period because of the blockade but nevertheless uh, that was a direct reaction of this new currency reform in west germany and that was a berlin blockade and all land water and railway lines to berlin and from berlin were blocked and no one could get in or could get out and so the allies uh, reacted with the berlin airlift so concerning intelligence, uh, the stuff with the currency reform happened within days, less than a week, uh, that all culminated in the blockade. So uh, the intelligence actually ha- had no chance uh, to do any uh, forecasts uh, what will happen. And uh, keep in mind that uh, blocking uh, roads is a passive is a passive uh, action. Uh, and uh, i think they were not even prepared to look at those uh, passive activities more Uh, they were looking more at active uh, things and uh, but active things during the blockade didn't happen so the passive thing was to just to block all uh, rail water and um, uh, block our ways to berlin and so the only way remaining are the air corridors and uh, as we all know Uh, that was a huge success uh, for the western powers were able after a couple of weeks uh, they were able to supply uh, all of west germany and uh, it went better and better and uh, after a couple of months they were able to transport more goods via these air corridors than they were before they came in before on the road or on the rail so that was that was amazing. That was amazing, logistically amazing. was that?
2: Yeah, no, indeed. And there were some opportunities for aerial espionage, which kind of continued on beyond the Berlin airlift. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that?
1: Well, during the Berlin airlift, they actually started uh, not only to send planes uh, with. Uh, uh food and and uh coal uh, into berlin but they also sent reconnaissance planes mm. in those three allied corridors to take photographs because all the aerial uh, most let's say uh, 60% of the ground underneath the airplanes was uh, soviet uh the soviet zone later became uh, the gdr mm. And uh, they did not even land in Berlin. They just fly the corridor, turn around, and fly back, mm. uh, taking uh, good photos. So they they continued that uh, bunch for lunch yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, to Berlin uh, activities. Uh, Approximately twice a week until German unification. Wow. So, for more than 40 years, uh, the Allies were flying the corridor, and probably for more than 40 years, this is the, the best documented. Territory in the world. (laughs) If you take photos of the Mm. same places uh, uh, twice a week, Mm. you know, and that's uh, for (laughs) more than forty years. Yeah, these are a lot of shots. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Gosh, it was. It sadly sort of reminds me of Ukraine a little bit because I've I've got this app on my phone called Flight Radar Twenty Four where you can see obviously aircraft activity and one of the things that you can see is some of the Western spy planes occasionally. So you get things like the drones, the Global Hawks. You get the the, the rivet joint, which is the big sort of spy plane, and and so when I was reading about the uh, espionage during Berlin airlift, I was just like, wow, you know, that practice has uh, got got its roots back to back even then. So <laughs> it's fantastic. We'll move on to the foundation of the two. German republics. So you've got the uh, Federal Republic of Germany, which was in the West, and the German Democratic Republic in the East. And in your book, you sort of talk about French and British intelligence activities during this time. Can you talk to, talk to us about what you discovered? And I guess we'll start with French intelligence.
1: Well, the French intelligence uh, had a hard start mm. because uh, they had to go underground uh, during the German occupation of uh, France. Mm. And uh, they have to develop uh, and were founded in January 1946. And it's called the Service de Documentation Exterieur et de Contre Espionage, SDEC. And they were f- formed in 46 and um, they had uh, two branches and one branch was based in saigon vietnam uh, to deal with the military problems uh, they had there with their former colonies and later on they were you know there when uh, the allies uh, were flying planes uh, to berlin Uh, The French uh, did not really take part in this flying because they were in a military conflict uh, uh, down there and uh, needed uh, all their planes. They they didn't have many planes, but the ones they had, they needed uh, for their conflict in 1948 down in the southeast. And the second uh, base um, of this intelligence service was uh, indeed stationed in Germany in Baden-Baden. And they should deal with the role of the French uh, in the coming uh, Cold War in Europe. And uh, as the British and the Americans and the Soviets, uh, actually in the very early post-war years, all four intelligence services were aiming at uh, German scientists. French did the same. But later on, I have to outline that at the end, uh, the Americans and the Soviets were mm. the most successful uh, mm. ones doing that. Yeah. But nevertheless, the French were also trying that, as well as the British, who had the longest history uh, concerning um, uh, political espionage organizations that went uh, well long back. But uh, after World War II, the SIS uh, conducted operations in, in, in uh, West Berlin. And uh, again, they were trying to uh, aim at German scientists and to persuade them uh, to come to Great Britain and work for Great Britain. And uh, to some extent, uh, they were successful, I think, at the end in uh, by November 1949, the British had convinced at least 332 scientists to leave the Soviet yeah. zone yeah. and go not especially to Great Britain, but at least uh, in their uh, zone in West Germany to work for them. And having these 332 in mind uh, I said the Americans were more successful they were able to uh, persuade approximately a thousand scientists uh, to come and go into the United States. And, and the most prominent figure is probably Heer uh, von Braun. Uh, who became uh, the deputy of the NASA? It is incredible because he, had, to, to be honest, Werner von Braun wasn't was a Nazi. Yeah, let's let's let's, let's face yeah, it. Yeah,
2: yeah, he was in the SS, wasn't he? he <laughs> was... and,
1: and he was working for the regime and doing everything he could. And um, yeah, that gives you an idea. Um, how denazification worked worked mm. uh, mm. after Second World War, mm. when everybody was aiming for the knowledge mm. um, and not not regarding what they did before.
2: Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you know, I don't know why it popped into my head. When I travelled to America in the nineties you used to have to fill in this form and on there you have to declare if you were a former Nazi from World War Two. <laughs> 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 obviously obviously for some people that was the problem. <laughs> I don't think that Werner von Braun filled in that form. No, I don't think he did. I don't think he did. I mean, it's, so, it's, it's it's, it basically, I mean, just for the, maybe some audience members who are not 100% um, up on what German scientists were specialists in, but Werner, uh, Werner von Braun was uh, obviously the rocket specialist, wasn't he? He was yeah. the man behind yeah. the, the V1 and V2 rocket, is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and not, not him, not he alone, he mm. had a couple of co-workers, mm. and a couple of them just, just uh, went with him to united states and he needed those uh guys he worked with at Peenemünde for the v2 uh, as well as Mm. now then in america Mm. uh, for their uh, space system yeah
2: yeah, yeah and obviously jet engines as well and I and, you know the the sort of ICBM intercontinental ballistic missile technology I'm sure has its roots in in this sort of research for both the Russians and the Americans.
1: Well, the the Russian approach mm. uh, for this these scientists uh, was uh, different. Mm. Ah. They do not uh, persuade uh, those people, mm. they just collected them. Uh plus their families and put them into uh, trucks, put them into trains, and transported them to Russia. And uh, they had to work there between uh, three and five years uh, for Russia in the scientific field. But after that time, they were free to leave the country, go back to uh, East Germany or wherever they want. But this was, uh, yes, uh, it was not not a persuasion, let's say, by money or by freedom or by freedom of science, whatever you have. So they just collected them, picked them up, including their families, uh, brought them to Russia and uh, kept them there for uh, between... Uh, two, three, or five years, and then they were set free, and uh, they could go wherever they want to. But you know, indeed, a couple of the scientists stayed after that time in Russia. Uh, and another, another good bunch went back to East Germany. Yeah,
2: yeah. Did any ever make it back to the West and and sort of get turned?
1: They, they could. Mm. they could yes Mm. there were some uh, who could do that you know if you were in east germany in the 50s late 50s it was uh, not a problem at all Mm. uh, to go to west germany Uh, indeed uh, we have uh, after the uprising in east germany in 1953 we had an incredible flow of refugees. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we were talking about Ukraine refugees mm. uh, nowadays, mm. of course, mm. but uh, I just want to give you one figure. Uh, after the uh, East German uprising in 1953, that was, uh, you know shut down by Russian tanks, uh, literally. More, Not more than, but nearly uh, 300,000 East Germans came to West Berlin, not to West Germany, in, to the city of West Berlin in one year. So remember what uh, incredible uh, uh, stroke for the city of West Berlin that was. Coping with 300, this is 10%, more than 10% of your population comes as refugee in, just in one year. And uh, we all have this uh, refugee problematic uh, in Europe uh, in 2015 in mind. Now the Ukraine refugees uh, that were distributed to several countries, to Poland, to uh, Yugoslavia. And and a lot of people are taking uh, those refugees, Germany as well. But those 300,000 exclusively came to West Berlin, which is a major problem also for the Allies. Mm. Because uh, the intelligence were trying to interview every single refugee they had an office and all refugees had to go through those intelligence uh, allied offices. And in there, they were asked uh, what they did in East Germany, uh, if they had any relation um, to the Russian forces whatsoever. And if they had... Uh, the Allies were trying to persuade them to go back on the same day before it was noticed they were missing. And believe it or not, uh, in quite a couple of cases, they were successful and and sent those, uh, I would say, stupid young men uh, back to his Germany to work for them as, you know, quote, agents. But the fate of those people who went back uh, is, um, usually uh, has no happy ending. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. Of course, Bridger spies for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there were no trained spies, mm. nothing, you know. Uh, mm. And after the, the war was erected, uh, mm. they even had no contact to any of the leading officers in West uh, Berlin. Uh, so that's that's uh, one thing. Um, uh, this uh, refugee, flea of refugees, is connected uh, to intelligence. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we learned later that uh, quite a few prominent um, spies came as a refugee to West Germany. So people who later worked in uh, West German administration, uh, stuff like this, uh, and also in in, uh, big uh, companies and firms, they came as a normal refugee in the 50s, uh, were flown out from West Berlin to West Germany, uh, had had the job there, and were good in their jobs, were promoted, and... uh, only after the collapse of uh, east germany uh, we noticed that uh, quite a few of those refugees and those uh, Early fifties, uh, were working for for uh, as, as as spies
2: actually. Yeah, yeah. one really interesting uh, piece of spy history that was uh, unique to Berlin is the the Berlin Spy Tunnel. Um, and you also have a connection to a uh, a special documentary that was made about the Berlin Spy Tunnel for George Blake's ninetieth birthday. Um, do you want to talk to us about both the the tunnel and your uh, experience with this Russian documentary?
1: Well, the Berlin Spy Tunnel. I would uh, call a perfect example for espionage activities uh, in Berlin. It has it 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 all. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, starting with the historical aspect, uh, I told you that Vienna was a blueprint uh, for uh, listening to um, Soviet communication. And they thought what's possible in Vienna is obviously also possible in Berlin. And they were looking for a place from where they could dig a tunnel from West Berlin to East Berlin, knowing exactly uh, where the telephone lines in East Berlin are because uh, the Soviet Union is using the old old German Reich uh, telephone uh, communication lines. So they knew exactly where they had to tap in. So that's the plan, and so what they did um that's what they did and the Amer- the British who did um the listening in vienna uh, brought in the Americans into the boat for simple reason uh the operation was so expensive that the British could not afford it yeah uh you know Great Britain at the end of the second world war was uh, on the uh, on the on the knees economically mm. on the knees mm. and uh, you even had bread we uh, even had uh, food rationing until the early 50s i guess yeah
2: yeah. my dad used to talk a lot about that <laughs> yeah
1: and and so obviously they could not pay for such an expensive mm. operation mm. that started in 1953 and the overall uh, costs were you know you will laugh now it was it was 6.7 million dollars yeah which to, today is a joke But at the time, that was a lot of money. Mm.
2: Mm.
1: For a a single operation in West Berlin, uh, you need to spend $6.7 million. So the Americans were willing to do that. So it was a combined operation. And um, unfortunately, really, in Great Britain, not more than a handful of people knew about it. Mm. And one of those handful was, unfortunately, uh, a guy uh, who was taking minutes yeah. uh, for one of those meetings and that was George Blake. <laughs> and uh, what nobody knew at the time is uh, that George Blake uh, was uh, working for the Russians for the KGB. Mm. Mm. And a couple of the very first meeting in '53, George Blake met his leading officer General uh, Konrachov uh, and he told him about the, the tunnel. And uh, so the KGB... Knew about the tunnel even before it was built. Yeah, <laughs> in the in the planning phase, <laughs> they knew about it, and then uh, the KGB decided had to decide what to do with the tunnel. So they had two options: either to protect their new top spy in the British administration, which is George Blake, or uh, to to ruin the tunnel or the plans for building the tunnel. And they decided to protect their new top spy. So. Uh, the tunnel was planned uh, it took them more than a year to build the tunnel and the tunnel was five meters deep it was more than 400 meters long yeah. and uh, the aim were three major telephone lines at the end of those 400 meters and uh, this technical bit uh, was done by british uh, specialists and experts uh, they did the, the tapping of the of these telephone lines and uh, after that they had access to nearly 300 single uh, telephone uh, numbers wow. and the conversations mm, in there mm. the tunnel was in operation for 11 months and during those 11 months they um, taped more than 400,000 telephone conversations mm, mm. even though the Russian knew about it they did not put false information through the tunnel uh, because uh, I, I had to learn that from those intelligence guys. Uh, General Konvachov uh, said at the museum it's far too complicated to produce good false information
2: especially to that volume i guess you talk about 300 phone compensations (laughs) a lot of people (laughs) exactly so they said the risk is too high and as
1: soon as as they know there's fake news going through the tunnel Mm -hmm. they knew they knew there is a mole somewhere and then um, they risk uh, george blake so that's not the thing they were they're doing but, but even though the tunnel uh, was um, find, found mm. uh, on purpose, and it was exactly the date when Nikita Khrushchev was on his first state visit to Great Britain. Yep. <laughs> they were talking about the Suez Crisis, um, a really hard military crisis at the time. And uh, Khrushchev said, uh, discover the tunnel when I am in Great Britain. That gives him, obviously, a bit more uh, space uh, for negotiations. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, what happened after the tunnel was discovered, in all the newspapers, uh, exclusively, exclusively, the Americans were blamed for the tunnel. And that is because Nikita Khrushchev said, uh, discover the tunnel when I'm in Great Britain and blame the Americans. And we even have an original Soviet document Uh, for East uh, German administration in Russian document is in Russian and, and the document says exactly what the East Germans had to do when they discovered the tunnel, mm. and one point is that they should exclu- exclusively blame the Americans for the tunnel, mm. <laughs> 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 and that has a background is uh, that uh, ex- as I said, Nikita Khrushchev is in Great Britain at the time. Yes, and then uh, after the tunnel uh, was um, was was found, uh, the CIA was pretty certain that was that was pure accident because at, at the time it was raining and one line was. Was very instable and uh, they were so clever the technicians they sent uh, to the area to find um, uh, the, the broken telephone cable while mm. it was uh, raining so hard mm. they had no clue they were digging and digging and digging and after a while they they, they found the tunnel and they had the microphones the CIA had microphones inside of the tunnel so they can hear what the technicians were talking and obviously the technicians had no clue what what was this steel steel tube yeah. it was a listening station underground listening station so they informed the soviet officers and back and forth and everybody who, who was coming what well, had no clue what that is and that um, on the other side on the CIA side um, that um, gave the impression that indeed uh, the tunnel was not found on purpose but uh, it was pure accident that they found the tunnel mm-hmm. but later later many years later uh, when george blake confessed that he was a spy for the kgb it was obvious that he or he he told uh, the british uh, that he was uh, the mole and that he told the kgb about the tunnel and uh, after that the tunnel uh, had not a good reputation because everybody thought false the false thought that a false information was sent through the tunnel which indeed did not happen so then Blake was imprisoned he managed to escape out of uh, the prison in Great Britain he fled to uh, East Germany in East Germany uh, he went to uh, Russia in Moscow he was uh, regarded as one of the heroes of the KGB until his uh, he he died uh, very 1995 uh, or something or 96 even he got uh, he lived as a persona grata of the KGB. He was always regarded as one of those heroes. And that is the reason why Vladimir Putin him, himself said he wanted to see uh a history documentary on george Blake and what he did for the soviet union for his 90th birthday and he wanted to show it on this very uh, well known first uh, russian program so a tv team from russia came to berlin and they hired me and I showed them everything and after 3 days they said they learned much more about this tunnel operation Uh, than they learned in Moscow because they had no access to any kind of archive in Moscow. And that was amazing for me. how how can they do a documentary on George Blake without having any access to any archive in the Soviet Union?
2: Mm, That's crazy, yeah. Yeah. yeah, they don't even have spy books in in <laughs> gosh. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! And um, I'm assuming you haven't met Putin or, or uh, George Blake, have you?
1: <laughs> no, George Blake, I haven't met. Uh, he, uh, but he gave a couple of uh, interviews, and uh, he nearly turned blind uh, when he's ninety and uh he's still, he is still george blake did not work for the soviet union in the kgb because he needed money but because he thought he was working for the wrong side so he's more or less a socialist or even a communist and and uh, he remained that until uh,
2: until his uh until his death yeah. yeah yeah i think it was it was it in um korea wasn't it? the korean war he turned i think
1: that's right yeah
2: he was imprisoned during
1: the korean war and uh during his imprisonment he for himself he decided he's working for the wrong side and then uh, via the north korean he offered his service to the russians and uh, ironically when he came back to great britain a couple of years later he was even sent to berlin because he was a genius concerning languages he could speak five languages fluently including Russia and russian and uh, he was sent to berlin in the 50s uh, to 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 recruit uh, east germans as agents <laughs> <laughs> uh, so funny, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. so um, that's the reason why George Blake was even in, in uh, stationed in, in West Berlin uh, for uh, several months there. Mm,
2: thank you for everything about the spy tunnel. Was there anything else you wanted to add about the spy tunnel before we move on to the Berlin Wall?
1: Well, at the Allard Museum, uh, for many, many, many years, uh, we had the only original segment mm. uh, of the spy tunnel. We digged it out uh, in, in Berlin after the uh, German unification, when they built a housing area at the place uh, where the spy tunnel was. And uh, yeah, so um, that was amazing. And then we digged out another piece, and uh, with this uh, historical information, we were in the newspapers worldwide, so uh, San Francisco Chronicle, uh, Italian newspapers worldwide, because we discovered uh, a couple of other original s- pieces of the spy tunnel very deep in uh, former east, uh, east germany and the reason for that is when the east germans wanted to get rid of the spy tunnel we thought honestly and and i know the cia thought as well because i have contacts there and they had no clue about uh, the spy tunnel being uh, rediscovered in in east germany so what the 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 East Germans did when they want to get rid of the spy tunnel. I told you it's 400 meters, uh, a very uh, st- a steel tube with a diameter of 1.9 meters. So a normal man could go through the steel tube. And uh, this is for 400 meters. So we have a lot of steel there. And uh, what they did, they reused it as shelters for their maneuvers in the forest. Huh. So pieces of the steel tube for th- three and four meter segments were cut into, they, were, they cut those pieces and they dig them into the forest and used them as um, headquarters uh, for their maneuvers in the forest for the pioneers. So all over and they sent those steel segments all over East Germany.
2: Not <laughs> <laughs> about recycling, very good. And
1: we had we had we had honestly we had no clue, CIA had no clue, Allied Museum had no clue. We all thought uh, that uh, East Germany probably melted these tons and tons and tons of good steel and and reused it for their their own purpose. Uh, They did reuse uh, it, but for military purpose, uh, being uh, uh, military uh, stands for um, their pioneers. And that was an incredible um, message, and that came in 2006,
2: uh, I guess. Mm -hmm.
1: We got this information. Wow, wow.
2: Um, Is some of it in the Spy Museum in Washington now? I've lost track of where those bits are.
1: It is. Mm. Everybody wanted to have a segment of uh, this mm. uh, s- spy tunnel, but we 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 just we just had two huge pieces, and we didn't want to give one away. But when we discovered that in East Germany there are more original segments of the spy tunnel digged d- in the forest, uh, we digged some out uh, for the spy museum in Washington. Indeed. So besides the Allied Museum in Berlin, the Spy Museum in Washington is the only museum in the world uh, that has another huge piece of the original
2: spy tunnel in Berlin, yeah. Excellent. Well, two places to go and check it out, so that's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, let's um let's look at the Berlin Wall. So the, the next major hurdle for Western intelligence and the citizens of Berlin was the, the Berlin Wall being constructed in 1961. Can you talk to us about this and uh, sort of what it um, how it sort of created uh, challenges for western intelligence
1: the berlin wall was uh, was a game changer Um, keep in mind that uh, before the wall was erected Mm. every person in west berlin as well as in east berlin could cross the border anytime as often as they wanted to So that was no problem at all. So people could go backwards and forwards um, whenever they want. You you can meet people in the other part of the city. You can talk to people in the other part of the city. You can meet uh, uh, in in the public. uh, You can meet uh, secretly in a forest, wherever you want to. Obviously, you can imagine that this is uh, the land of milk and honey uh, if you are working in the intelligence business. But when the war was erected, this was completely over. Yeah, so East Germans, no way for any East German uh, to go from East to West again. And it was also pretty complicated, uh, or I wouldn't say um, impossible, but unusual for uh, military personnel to go to East Germany. Uh, they go there for shopping. They go there for sightseeing. They're going there in the opera, but not for several days. Uh, that would be suspicious. Um, and um, if you leave the group and you will be followed, it's uh, very risky. If if uh, if you go there in your, and you have to go to East Germany in in your uniform. Yeah. and obviously if you're going in your uniform it's easy to you know to recognize yeah. you yeah. easy to follow you and then you risk uh, the risk uh, the life of the guy you're going to meet with so that makes no sense so berlin wall was the game changer but the berlin tunnel a couple of years before in 55 showed already that they transformed uh intelligence work from human intelligence uh, which is meeting your opponent in the west or in the east to um, the technical intelligence uh, which the tunnel was by listening to the telephone conversation and um, that's uh, what happened in the years that uh, are coming they were spending much more money into technical devices, into listening stations like the Teufelsberg, like Marienfelder, like at Tempelhof, and in Gatow. You have a couple of listening stations uh, that were able to listen deep into Moscow, into the Soviet Union. And um, this, uh, they spent a lot of money uh, into that because uh, the human factor uh, was no longer that important because of the Berlin Wall. That's indeed a game-changer. And talking about uh, intelligence, um, yes, indeed, uh, they were surprised somehow. There had been hints and there had been um, messages by individuals. But we know all that now, after months, years and decades later, uh, it is obvious that there had been hints that something would happen. And even the political leaders knew that I, I mentioned all the refugees from East Germany to West Germany. And even uh, the American leader uh, knew, um, Kennedy, that something will happen and that the East Germans had to stop this uh refugee, um, you know, bleeding out, uh, bleeding out East Germany. It's, it's all the young people that are leaving, not the old ones. Uh, the young people you need for the future of, of uh, the country, those are the ones who are leaving. And everybody knew they had to stop this somehow. Uh, but uh, I think they were not aware that it was so uh, brutal and, and so long-lasting like the Berlin Wall. Yeah,
2: what effect did the, the Berlin Wall have on on uh, Russian intelligence? Did it have any effect?
1: Well, more or less the same. Uh, like uh, on, on the Western intelligence, uh, the exchange of uh, of people going back and forth, going from the east to the west, from the west to the east, was uh, only possible for diplomats. Uh, and as I said for individuals in uniforms and uh, it, it also limited uh, the possibilities of the other side but I think uh, the benefit is definitely on the western part uh, sorry on on the eastern part because they were able to stop this
2: um, uh, refugees for going from east yeah, to west yeah yeah it's a lot more kind of clamped down so yeah bernard thank you so much for your time today where can listeners find out more about you and your work
1: well i mentioned i'm uh, working at the allied museum and um our webpage is uh, bilingual so uh, whoever wants to click in uh, the web page of the allied museum in berlin he's uh, free to do so and uh, also i mentioned uh, the book it's called capital of spies and uh, casemate is the publisher and uh, as i said it is a, is a is a good overview to get an idea uh, what kind of activities happened uh, in berlin not only in the western part that is that's that was my part but also in east germany with the uh, staatsicherheit and the activities uh, um, that were going on there. So it's a good overview, and whoever is interested in a single story then can go further and, and see if there are any books, especially on that one subject. But we were trying to present a larger scale and a better overview.
2: Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you again for joining me today. Thank you, Chris.
0: This is Secrets and Spies.